0: So here we are in the in, in the fourth chapter and the, the point we've been dealing with is the power of chuva. And the way the Ramchal presents this is completely different to the you know the, the normal model of um, the normal model of how we think if if you use English words like penitence and repentance or saying sorry. So the Ramchal's got a very different different way about um, ex- expressing himself, oh. he, 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 he describes this process as not making amends, but as a complete and total revision of history, a reworking of the past into a different reality than one that, that actually occurred, which, which is an astonishing and almost one would think bombastic claim to make. And he himself questions that claim by saying, How is it possible that a person can uproot a piece of an event from history simply by my feeling in regard to that event? And this is the way he puts it across. That the event that occurred, the event that occurred in the past is... um, (coughs) Someone did something wrong. I'll give you an analogy because I think this captures the idea of regret. Imagine that you know, you've know, you got a very limited budget and you decide that it's convenient it's hard to get to town and to, to go to the bank and to draw money. So you decide to draw a thousand shekels it should last you for a bit. And you draw the money you take it out of the machine you, just, you balance it on top of the counter while you tie your shoelace. As you're tying your shoelace you get a call and you answer the call, and you get distracted, and you start you start walking away from the from the teller as you you're on your phone. Uh, <coughs> two minutes later, you suddenly realize, oh my gosh, I've got the money on the on the top of the top of the on the top of the counter, and you say, I'm sorry, I can't speak to you now. Boom, put down the phone, and rush back to the counter, and the money's gone. No more money. Someone's taken the money. <coughs> so. You, how do you feel? How do you feel, Ezra? Right. Right, that's one way of saying it, but I <laughs> need something a little bit more specific. I mean, people feel that way when they wake up in the morning on Sundays and <laughs> the, day, the day after, the night before and stuff. Like, What do you feel? What do you feel? What do you feel, James? Um, I guess it's lots of money edge very disappointed, angry at myself, upset. Angry at myself, upset. If you could do one thing in the world, what would you do, James? Uh, go back in time. Go back in time. you go back in time and you say to yourself, I just wish I could turn the clock three minutes back. Three minutes, that's all I want. I want an extra three minutes, and I want to be sitting at the teller, and I want to put that money on the counter, and instead of tying my shoelace, I first put the money in my wallet, and then I move on. That's all I want to do. That feeling of wanting to turn the clock back in time is the pain of regret and that feeling is based on the following internal understanding of self that were I to be in that position again there's no way in the world I would ever do the same thing in other words regret is an expression of the distance I have from the act in the past now This is where Tshuva becomes freaky because in the bank teller example I'll feel that feeling but that feeling will not put the money back into my hands and if I feel that feeling and I admit to the boy to Hashem and I say I'm really sorry for having left the money on the counter I'll never do that again the money is still lost what's done is done and in the natural world cannot be undone comes along the Ramchal and says if that thing that you did in the past the mistake that you made was a mistake in the world of spirituality how do run you can remove the act from reality and the two examples he gives are murder and adultery man killed another a man killed another and now in hindsight he looks back at the deed and he can't comprehend how he could have done it and he sincerely regrets wishing he could just turn the clock backwards he would never ever do that again and comes along the Ramchal says when you do that and you fulfill the criteria of Tshuva and it bothers you and you wish as if it never would have happened the murder is now removed from the annals of history one second we look at each other perplexed what that means when this person does tshuva and the corpse has already been rotting in the ground it somehow comes back to life? Nay, I say, for sure not. Well then how can the Ramchal ascertain that it's been removed? It's certainly not. The physical ramifications are felt very strongly. To answer this question we have to posit another perspective which is something which I feel just guess we relate to in many ways. And that is a humble recognition of <coughs> the degree to which the Borea Olam Hashem is involved in the nitty-gritty actions of our lives. And in order to properly incorporate the idea of Tshuva, we have to almost have a level of emuna, both in ourselves and in the Borea Olam, as to how the world works. For example, the entire notion of brachas is to create an internal consciousness of the lack of randomness in the physical world one would think that in the words of the sages things work there's cause and effect nature has a course it has a path and therefore when things go according to the anticipated path there's no direct involvement of the Bur Olam Shame doesn't get there things happen if things would happen in a normal way so it would undermine the need for brochures. Imagine every time you go to the toilet. And then you say, whoa, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. What do you mean it's a miracle? It's not a miracle. You ate food. You've got digestive juices. You've got digestive tract. The way it works is digestion takes, takes between, depending on what you eat, but let's say 24 to 36 hours. And then the same food is processed and expelled through your rear end. This is the way it works. And when you have that experience, what should you think? You think, yeah, no big deal. No big deal. Really no big deal. But to sit there and say, Wow. I'm standing right now in front of your majestic being. And declaring. If it would not be for your moment, mo, ongoing, moment by moment intervention in the workings of my guts, I would not be able to stand in front of you for a second. So, at that moment, at that declaration, what are you recognizing? You're recognizing your absolute fragility, mortality, inability to sustain your own life and that your physical functioning is an ongoing gift, say thank you, and we do. And every time you drink a, a drink of water, <coughs> you make a bracha. You make a bracha. <laughs> because you recognize that there's, something, there's nothing intrinsic. In other words, the lesson of Yitzhak Mitzrayim leaving Egypt was not that the miraculous is great, but that the non-miraculous is miraculous. If the sea can split, it means that as long as it's not splitting, it's because it's being willed not to split. If the river can turn to blood, it means it's only water because it's been willed into water. And there's an ongoing willing it into water. So now, once we recognize that we have far less control over our lives than we anticipated, and really, people, people are afflicted by some of the strangest and most de- de- debilitating and dreadful diseases and they can happen in a split second I had the tragic news that a person you know the way they announce funerals in Israel is they have a car with a loudspeaker driving through the roads announcing the funeral and the person it's a very jarring way of hearing of a person's departure but that's what happened to me just before um, just after Rosh Hashanah I hear this loudspeaker speaker going through the streets, and I, I listened to the name. And I couldn't really pay attention because I'm assuming it's someone I don't know and someone old. Listen more carefully to the to the name, and I just I can't, be, no, I can't, I can't no it can't be, no, I can't be, can't be. So I go ask someone else. I say, he's he's a guy that says behind me and show. Yeah, what happened? got sick, he died But but i saw him like he has been been two months since see. started feeling weak now he's dead and then all of a sudden we confront the reality of our own mortality and we recognize that no, it's actually actually I am fallible and when I embrace my fallibility I also recognize that there's actually a limit to what I can do I can't choose to live, I can't choose to wake up in the morning I can't even choose to move my bowels what can I choose what can I choose there's only one thing I can ultimately choose with absolute certainty that will for sure be and that is the will to do beyond the will to do there is nothing within my jurisdiction absolutely can I kill a person absolutely not it requires a collaboration of multiple factors in order for that to occur and if so in some bizarre sense in order for anything to be activated it requires some level of divine intervention And my contribution to this cake of reality is one small ingredient. And it's the will to do so. The will to do so is a reflection of me. What would happen if I remove the will to do so from my internal reality? Well, the only reason it entered into the external reality was because it was in my internal reality. So when I reverse my internal reality... It no longer exists. Comes along Shimon says not only does it not exist now, it never existed then. Now that's a jump. Make it more clear. When Reuven killed Shimon, so he didn't kill Shimon. He wanted to kill Shimon and he pulled the trigger on a gun and the bullet shot through the air and it lodged itself in a place which caused the fatality of Shimon but he didn't kill him because in order for that to occur there were factors which had to collaborate with Ruvein's desire the gun had to work the wind had to be it had to have a susceptibility and it could have there are enough crazy stories of bullets going in and out of people and remaining relatively unscathed. There's a famous case of Phineas Gage <coughs> you've heard of the case Phineas Gage is a famous case in psychology where he was exper- a a building foreman and there was an explosion and a one meter rod with a sharpened point shot through him entering into his left cheek and exiting through the top of his head a one meter rod so it's not only that something went through him it went through him like pretty thoroughly and after this happened he convulsed and then woke up and said oh my gosh I better go to the doctor (laughs) So he goes He survived, he survived Went to in, Got into a car <coughs> Why well, don't you go into in a car? So no, it Shot, shot through him oh. And landed 10 meters away Put The whole thing into it. The oh. whole thing Like a steel rod. Oh. steel rod Steel rod Through his cranium Through his cranium He is so. bleeding And then like Walks himself to a doctor Walks himself to a doctor goes to the doctor's room And he tells the doctor And the doctor laughs at him He says not be serious And he starts to vomit And he starts to vomit At half a half a teacup of brain spilled out, so, so, so the doctor had to kind of try to put it back in, and he survived, he survived, and he continued to live, I don't know how many years afterwards, but he, he actually started to make a, pr- a, a prognosis out of carrying the rod around with him, and getting people to, to tell people the story. So that's finished Gage, in other words, you, th- that's, you know, you'd think, the guy's there's a door-night, I mean, he had a one-meter rod go through his cranium, it's pretty dangerous, and he walks out like, relatively speaking, unscathed. So, there needs to be a collaboration for anything to occur. So, what ingredient do we put in? So, we put in the ingredient of the will to do. Good. This is the miracle. What happens when you remove the will to do? Well, already we're removing the will to do in the present. We're not removing the will to do in the past. So, even if all we contribute was the will to do, that will still is there. You following me? And therefore, even though chuva can say you didn't kill him, but it can't take away the fact that once you did want to kill him. (laughs) And yet the Ramchal says no it doesn't. It also takes away that you once once wanted to kill him and now you never wanted to kill him. How does that work? So in order for us to understand this we have to understand another level. And this is a game changing piece of information. Because it redefines our entire identity. there are some parts of us which are fundamental and some parts of us which are incidental. To the degree that we can start to relegate the incidental to being not me, not my fundamental identity. Things which c- sometimes encroach. We'll call them the external imposters. We are susceptible to invasion. Invasion by who? By aliens? Nay. Say I. Perhaps as well. But we're in susceptible to invasion by our, in turn, our internal imposters. And what do those imposters do? They take over the essential self and they start to guide, run, and direct. And where do they come from? I don't know, but not from within. They come from without. They're imposters. Those imposters can take the form of anger or desire or lust. And those imposters encroach. On My own internal being and start to run the ship, but they're imposters. Why they're imposters because they go in complete, completely contrary direction to the essential core of my being. The essential core of my being is a point of me which can never be defiled. Or corrupted, <laughs> a pure essential part of God, and that's what I am. Telem Elokim. I'm a telem elokim. So now let's think about that. If I am fundamentally a Telem elokim. going back to the notion of what's my most authentic, authentic, authentic self, my authentic self is chelik el mimal. I'm only of the B'erodim. breathed into me and the Shamaka And the other stuff accessories, imposters really there to create a resistance so that when I bring out the actions of purity and kadusha, there's meaning to it because there's opposition that stops it from coming out but my essential core is so therefore what is the process of Tshuva? the removal of my will from the past in relation to the action that I've done is a reconnection to my authentic self. And what's it saying? Do you know what it's saying? It's saying that world that existed in the past was not me. That was not me. There was an imposter. The me, the real me, never ever desired to do that. And now I'm recognizing it. And that's why it vanishes. Because it never existed to begin with. I'll give you a bit of an analogy and this is going to be just maybe a drop hard to follow so bear with me and if you, um, if you miss it you can, you can listen again. The Arizal says that Purim and Yom Kippur have a overlap and in fact Yom Kippur is called Yom Kippurim because it's a day like Purim. So this is the vote that people like to say round about Purim time. It's very rarely said round about Kippur. Uh, Yom Kippur is like Purim. It's more like, Purim is like Yom Kippur, especially when people are suspected of alcohol abuse. But let's do it this way around. Why is Yom Kippur like Purim? Let's speak about Purim and then we'll speak about Yom Kippur. It's very important. Purim was a day where the Jewish people accepted the Torah. Um, the Gemara in Megillah says, They accepted the Torah again with willingness. And this is because, why do they need to accept it again? What about shvuz? What about, what about, you know, the Kabbalah Toe Torah, about back in the day, like when they got the Torah, like what about that? There was a problem. The Gemara describes what happened. They were under duress, weren't they? Hashem, as it were, lifted Har Sinai above them and said, guys, if you want to accept the Torah, good. Otherwise, boom, I'm dropping this mountain on top of you. And we know that any contract signed under duress is not binding. Right. So, if so, the commitment that the Jews had to Torah was never binding because it was entered into under duress. Luckily, in the time of Achashverosh, the Jews said, we want it. And they willingly accepted. So now, that sounds like a great vote. But the problem is, there was a lot of time between the acceptance of the Torah and Purim and Jews were held accountable for keeping the Torah in between why were they accountable? they were under duress If on, on Purim they only accepted it willingly it means from that point in time there should not have been Navim, there should not have been a destruction of the first temple there should have not been any kind of capa- culpability because they never accepted the Torah but bizarre comes on Rav Huttner and gives us an insight and he says the following thing he says that What happened on Purim wasn't a re-accepting, it was a realization of what happened in the past. When the Jews said, we want the Torah on Purim, they weren't mechadesh, they didn't innovate, they revealed, what did they reveal? They revealed that what appeared to be duress in the past was in fact with volition. Sure, Hashem held a mountain above us That wasn't the impetus for us to get into the contract We wanted it regardless That was for a different reason Which we can explore We wanted it, so what did Purim reveal? It doesn't tell me now It tells me retroactively what always was On Purim, the Jews revealed What was always present, which was We want it because we want it so Purim gave us light that the duress was only an apparent duress. What appeared to be honest was really rotsowing. What appeared to be duress was really willful and with volition. That's Purim. You got Purim? Yes. Yom Kippur is the same thing, reversed. What happens on Yom Kippur? We go back to an action in the past, like in Purim. Purim, we go back to the event in the past. The event in the past was the keeping of the Torah. And we said, it looked like the keeping of the Torah was under duress. Now that we have revealed the essence of ourselves, we see what appeared to be duress was really willing. What appeared to not have me there, had me there. What appeared to be not my dais, is my dais. Yom Kippur is the same thing in reverse. What happens? You go back to the Avera, which is the opposite of the keeping of the Torah. It's the rejection of the Torah. In other words, it's the opposite to the receiving of the Torah. You go back to the, the Avera, and there, instead of like on Purim where I received the Torah, there I rejected the Torah. And when I reject the Torah, I look back in the past, and it looks like I did it willingly. So it's, the, it's almost the reverse. It's a rejection of the Torah, which looked to be willful. And now I look in the past, and I say, I regret doing that. What's happening? the same process from the opposite direction what appeared to be willful was actually duress what appeared to be me was not me. I was under the duress of the impostors. Yitzroi Onsoi. My Yitzroi was annex me. I was under duress. It looked like it was willing. In fact, now I reveal, that's not me. The me didn't want that. The me was compelled to do that by an external force. That's what I reveal on Yom Kippur. So Purim and Yom Kippur are exactly the same. They reveal the essential self. The consequences are, in fact, opposite. On Purim you say, what appeared to be duress... To force, it, to force me to keep the Torah was actually a willing acceptance. And Yom Kippur you say, what appeared to be a willingness was actually a duress. And that comes about by a recognition of the essential core of who I am. And that's Yom Kippur, that's why they're the same. And that's why you can rewrite history. Because under duress your actions have no bearing. I was under the dress, Under the dress of who? Under the false paradigm, the ridiculous narrative that told me a story about my life which is inauthentic. And now I've discovered authentic. And now that I'm with authentic, the inauthentic narrative disappears whew, into the midst of time. It didn't exist. I, the man's body lies dead upon the ground. That was Hashem's doing, not mine. My contribution was my willingness to do so. And even that didn't exist because I had no willingness. I was... Forced, compelled by the external forces, the impostors of self, those that substitute my diet with an exiled sense of being. And now we've reconnected to the deep, fundamental part of our self. And that's the path that we need to tread on Yom Kippur. And that's the path of life. And I tell you, nice vote, this path of life is a path which needs to be tread for many a decade to recognize on ever, ever deeper levels. It's not something that one vote later, we we'll all wake up astonishingly connected to the deeper essence of ourselves. It certainly is a pathway that we can progress across, uh, uh, around and discovering more and more, getting more and more in touch with authentic self. Why? Why would we live a lie? Why would we live a lie? Why would we live a lie and read a script that's never been written for us? Not only that, that same script that's never been written for us undermines who we are. It's not even a part that I can play well. And that's the purpose of Yom Kippur and if you look at it it's a fascinating thing this is something which occurred to me I don't know if it's right but I'll throw it out there what's all this Lashon of there's books and there's writing tell me about that book called Sefer Achayim why is it saying that? do you know what it says? it's the story of my life connected to my authentic self and now we see the futility of our own narratives when we live in a life where we think we are the authors and we write our own scripts no, no. No, no. No narrative that we write can corroborate to the essential essence of who we are. Because Hashem's writing the book. And He's writing us. And when you, us, when you write us, when you you say for Achaim, we have to recognize that we're a character in that story. And we're not the author. And when you're a character in that story, so then we understand that the unfolding events of life are not things that I design, but things that are put there for me to respond to, to within them uncover the riches that will in turn allow me to experience ever more clear levels of my eternal self. And essentially the whole of Yom Kippur is trying to get into the book of Hashem. And go with His plot. And read His script. And have it coherent. With the safer Chai. Questions, thoughts, reflections. Asha. According to what Rabbi was saying in regards to that, our only responsibility is the act, is the will to do something. Why don't we have to do chuba for something that we try doing and doesn't end up So that's kind of a, a point, which is a great point, because culpability in. Reality only exists with things that we actually, simply speaking, only things that we actually did are we culpable for. Things that we thought about doing, or even, tried. or even tried to do and failed, we are not culpable for. So this actually opens up a whole new sugi, right? It opens up a sugi in two ways. It, it opens up the sugi of what do what the role of thoughts, will, etc., play in our process of chiva, both for the good and for the bad, and in our interaction with the world. As an example, let me just give you an example to open up the suge, which I'm certainly not going to close down today. There's a gomor and person marries a woman. He's a roshagomor. Roshagomor means he's a bona fide, evil person. On the way to the wedding, he mugged three old ladies. <laughs> like, literally, he mugged three old ladies, assaulted them, took their money, and with the money, he bought the ring. And now he's at the chuppah. And he says, Hey, <speaking> Ratham Amanas Shaani Now, This guy is not a tzadik. He's not a tzaddik by any stretch of the ma- imagination. What's a psa- what's a psa- <laughs> It's well, I think I heard about this the other day. It's like a Sof- there's a sophic. Right? He's mukadeshmi sophic. <laughs> Why? <laughs> because he could be a tzaddik, even like even in a reggae he could be a Shema hear her but Maybe he thought about doing chuv in a minute. What do you mean? So who cares? So he thought about doing shiva. From this, Reptolik brings a raya that is the hero, There's different kinds of thoughts. Here is a specific kind of thought comes from the word herayon, which means pregnancy. Means there's, a, there's a, like a fetus is present; it just hasn't come into reality. Certain thoughts are much more concrete thoughts. They have proper um, structure to them. So that in itself is the essential movement in Tshuva. It's a different way of thinking. And if you think a different way of thinking, there's already, if you did, if you had thought about Tshuva, meaning, it's only a Tshuva because you don't know if he did. But if you found out that he for sure did, he's a Why? Because now he's a What is it Sadiq? He just thought about it. He's in the way here. That's where the change is. So that's fascinating. On the other hand, there's a Gemara in the end of Kedushin, end of the first paragraph of Kedushin, which says, Machshav <laughs> HaTovah, Mitzchav HaLemais so, because of this whole sugya of hero is a massive sugya, and there's a lot to think about. But right now, for the moment, we seem to have run out of time. And I think what we perhaps delved into today was, for me, refreshing, exciting, and certainly a different way of seeing ourselves and relating to the imposters on the outside of who we are. And perhaps we can go a bit further with developing, what kind of internal dialogue would we like to develop in order to regain and reclaim an ongoing sense of authentic self and not be pulled away by strange people writing us strange scripts that we never auditioned for. That my gentlemen is a challenge for the future.